Well, let me say it one final time. If you'll open your Bible this morning to the book of Revelation on the last Sunday of June in 2019, we began our study of this amazing book. And here we are on the third Sunday of July in 2021, and we have finally come to the end of our study. Now, this is the 52nd sermon in our study in the book of Revelation. Obviously, there are more than 52 Sundays in a year, but as the pandemic came and Christmas came and other special times came, the, the series has been stopped and started and stopped and started, and so there have been a lot of interruptions in our study of the book of Revelation. And so what I thought would be a good idea today would be to take one final Sunday morning and to just kind of wrap up everything that we have learned so far. When I was in college, I took Greek. My second year of, uh, of college, my spring semester, and I did not do very well in Greek. In fact, I was looking through my college transcripts at home this morning before I came out here, and I was reminded of the grade that I made in that class, and it was not really good, I have to be honest with you. But after I graduated college and went to seminary, I ended up taking the same class over again. I took it one summer. They were offering an entire year's worth of Greek in 10 weeks. And so I took the class and I did very well. I learned it. I had been exposed to Greek when I was in college and I learned that there's something about taking a lot of information and compressing it that sometimes is a more effective way to learn. That's why in so many of the colleges and universities now in January, maybe in the summertime, they'll have a class or a, a a semester, they call it an I-term, and what it is, it is one week where you can study world history or American history or some topic that normally would be drug out over the course of 16 weeks. You take that information and you compress it down and you learn it in a shorter amount of time. Now, certainly when you do it that way, you don't get all the details, but sometimes you get the big picture of the topic better than you would if you drug it out over the course of a semester. And so today, that is kind of the spirit of this sermon. I want us to take everything that we have looked at for the previous 51 sermons and compress it together and see if we can't learn it. And I want to say in the beginning, you are so kind this morning to give me three hours of your time for us to do this. Because not many people would do that to a preacher. But you give me three hours, and I think in three hours we can easily, all the visitors are leaving now. No, I'm just teasing. We're going to do it in 30 minutes, and I hope that it will be a very helpful thing. Now, what I want to accomplish in this sermon, what I hope to accomplish, I want us to get an overview of the book. I want us to look at, there's one verse in here that gives us the outline for the whole book. And then at the very end, I want to make a summary statement of the book of Revelation, and then I want to give us some action steps, some things that we can do in response to this. I think so many times when we're reading our Bible, whether it's Revelation or Isaiah or Genesis or Exodus or Matthew or Mark, we, we are intimidated by the Scriptures because if you're anything like me, I sometimes will approach a passage of Scripture, open my Bible up to a particular place, and I'll just think, this is so much information, and there's no way that I could learn everything in here. And sometimes the devil can get in our minds and cause us to think that we're not smart enough to learn the Bible, or we'll never know everything that we need to know, or somebody's going to know more than we do. Well, listen, there'll always be somebody that'll know more than we do. 
And the truth is, none of us is going to understand everything about the Bible because there are things written in here that are, mis- that are mysteries to us. But the fact is, God gave us this book so that we could read it, so that we could understand it, and so that we could apply it to our life. Now, when we think about the book of Revelation, certainly it is the most... Uh, What's the word? It it is the most complicated book in the Bible. It's the deepest book in the Bible. There are images, there are are metaphors, there are signs and symbols, and we have worked our way through this, and we've we've tried to look at most all of that. But today, I want us to step back from all those details, and I want us to get the big picture of the book of Revelation. And I think if we'll do that, when you leave here in a few minutes, you're going to say, you know what? I feel like, I may not know everything, what this represents or what this means, but I feel like I have an understanding of what this book is all about. And so if you picked up a bulletin when you came in today, you're going to notice that we have printed out for you there all 22 chapters. Now, some of those chapters we have grouped together, but what I've done, what I've tried to do is to give, you know, a little synopsis of what that chapter is all about. And if we can learn that, that's the big picture, then we can learn what the book of Revelation is. So I want us to just walk through this today, and we'll look up some verses, and on some of these we won't even look at verses. I'll just describe it. The, the first chapter in the book of Revelation is what I would call a vision of Jesus. Now, a vision of Jesus. Let's just start in Revelation chapter 1 and in verse number 1, and notice how the book starts. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation means the unveiling of something, and here it is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It is true that the book of Revelation tells us a great deal about future events, the end times, but keep in mind, the main subject of this book is not the end times. The main subject of this book is Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly or quickly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, that's the apostle John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And so the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that has a built-in, written-out promise that we will be blessed if we study this book. Now, you're going to be blessed no matter what book of the Bible you're reading. In my own personal Bible reading at home, I'm actually reading some of the selected passages out of the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. And yet, even studying in Leviticus, I'm being blessed. So anything you read in the Bible is going to be a blessing to you. Now look in verse number 10. John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He's on an island for his, he's he's like in confinement, in a prison setting because of his faith and witness for Jesus Christ. And he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And so as John is on the island of Patmos, he has this vision of Jesus. 
And Jesus says to him, John, I'm going to tell you some things that are, that are mind-boggling, that are, that are almost above the human mind's ability to comprehend or understand, and yet I'm going to put it in language that you can understand, write it down, and put it in a book. And so John starts to write down what he's seeing. Well, the first thing that John is seeing, and we saw this as we studied chapter 1 two years ago, we see that John has a vision of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, remember, John was one of the 12 disciples. He had been with Jesus on the earth for three years. He knew what Jesus looked like. And yet in this vision, he's seeing Jesus in all of his glory. He's seeing Jesus in a way that he had never seen Jesus before. And as John describes what he's seeing in the risen, exalted Christ, he describes that he had hair like wool, eyes like fire, feet like brass, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And John is thinking to himself, I've never seen Jesus like this before in all of his glory. And he writes it down. And so chapter 1 is a vision of Jesus. Chapters 2 and 3 are the seven churches that were located in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And we've spent the last several weeks studying each of those churches. Jesus had a message to those churches, and he has a message to us today. And in chapter 4 and in verse number 1, we get a description of the rapture of the church. Now, we've talked about this, done a whole sermon on the rapture, but it's been a long time. Go back to chapter number 4 and in verse number 1. John said, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like the trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. And so John sees heaven and he sees a door is open and he's told to come up and he goes up to heaven. And from this point on, John is in heaven and he's telling us what he is seeing happening in heaven and then what he sees happening on the earth from his vantage point in heaven. And so I understand this as most people people do who study the Bible, that this is a picture of the rapture of the church. What do you say? What is the rapture of the church? The rapture is an event that will happen one day. We read about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where suddenly, unexpectedly, completely out of the blue, you'll be at work, at home, watching a ball game, asleep, eating, doing something, and all of a sudden, there will be a shout from heaven, and there will be the voice of the archangel. And there will be a trumpet. The trumpet of God will blow. And in that moment, those of us who are saved will be caught up to be with God forever in heaven. That is the rapture. Now, in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, when John is taken up to heaven, I understand this to be that in John's taking up, that is emblematic. That is symbolic of all Christians being taken to heaven because from this point until we get to the end of the book, there's no mention of the church on earth. There's not. Because the church at this point is taken to heaven. And so chapter 4, verse 1, is the rapture of the church. It could happen just like that. I wonder if the rapture happened during this sermon today. How many of us would go up and how many would be left in this room? Wouldn't that be a horrible thing to be at church this morning and, and the rapture take place and all of a sudden 85 or 90% of the room completely gone and yet here there would be some perhaps who missed the rapture because they never had been truly saved. Well, John went up to heaven and one day we will too. In chapters 4 and 5, we read about a worship scene in heaven. And that's the best way that I know to describe this. And this music that uh, Jimmy and our 
praise team and choir had for us this morning describe the worship that is taking place in heaven. In fact, if you look in chapter number 5 and in verse number 11, John says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. The living creatures, now that we've studied, the four living creatures, these are a special category of angels, probably the cherubim that are around the throne of God uh, constantly, and the elders, that is the 24 elders who represent the church, those of us who've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he says, and the number of them, that is the number of the angels, now watch this, was 10,000 times 10,000. You do the math on that, that is a hundred million angels. And then it says, and thousands of thousands. How many angels are there in heaven? Well, we don't know. We know there are over a hundred million because 10,000 times 10,000 is a hundred million. And then it says, and thousands of thousands. And we also read in Hebrews chapter 12 and in verse number 22 that in heaven there is an innumerable number of angels. And so when we get there, there's no way that we could even count all those. Now, God knows the number, but we would never be able to number the angels. And so in chapters 4 and 5, John, now taken to heaven, is describing what he's seeing. And around the throne of God, he is seeing incredible worship that is taking place. Now, when we come to chapter number 6, and all the way through chapter number 18, chapter 6 through chapter number 18, we read about the period of time that will one day come on this earth known as the Great Tribulation. Christians have been taken to heaven. That, when, the, when the rapture takes place, there are no Christians on the earth. Everybody on the earth is now unsaved. And so for seven years, there will be a time of suffering, the judgment of God. This is when the Antichrist rises up. This is when we read about the mark of the beast. If you're on the earth at this time, you'll have to take the mark of the beast, 666, in order to go to the grocery store. If you want to buy a loaf of bread or some milk, if you want to buy some water to drink, you'll have to have the mark of the beast either on your head or on your uh, hand to be able to buy anything or to be able to sell anything. It's a horrible time. We read that the sun, the moon, the stars are losing their light. Things are falling out of heaven. People are dying. It's horrible. Interestingly enough, during these seven years, many people will get saved. Many other people won't get saved. And so as we think about the Great Tribulation, we wonder, what is the purpose of the Great Tribulation? Why would God allow there to be this seven-year period of time on the earth where people are suffering like this? And I think there are really two purposes for the Great Tribulation. Number one, it is the judgment of God on sin. God is holy. We, we know that God is loving, and we're thankful for that. But God is also holy, and he must judge sin. And the second thing about the tribulation, God is giving those who have never been saved one final chance to receive him as their Lord and Savior. He's giving them a chance to be saved. And so in chapters 6 through 18, we read all about the great tribulation. Interestingly enough, this book is largely about that seven-year period of time. In our study of Revelation, of the 52 sermons that we've done on this book, 18 of them have been on the Great Tribulation. Some of you thought we were in the Great Tribulation when we were doing that for 18 weeks. But I was just trying to walk through it, and we were trying to learn about it, and that's what it was. Now, when we come to chapter 19, things perk up a little bit. And things get a little more exciting. And this, from chapter 19 to the end, has been my favorite part of our study. Now, in chapter 19, there are three things that we read about. Number one, something called the marriage of the Lamb. 
And the marriage of the Lamb is a celebration that will be taking place in heaven while the great tribulation is going on on earth. Remember, spiritually speaking, those of us who are saved are married to Jesus. We're the bride. He's the groom. And so we're going to be celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. Not only that, in chapter 19, we read about the battle of Armageddon and of all the sermons that we've done in Revelation. That was my favorite one. We read about how, in fact, let's just look at that again. In chapter 19, look in verse 11. John's having this vision. He said, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And he describes Jesus. And he describes what Jesus looked like and what Jesus is wearing. And in verse 14, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And so at the battle of Armageddon, Jesus is coming out of heaven on his white horse. And we're following him on our white horse. You say, where are we going? We're coming back to the earth for Jesus to fight the final battle. And it says in verse 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And so the battle of Armageddon is in chapter number 19. At the end of the battle of Armageddon, Jesus defeats the Antichrist, who is described in the book of Revelation as the beast, and he also defeats the false prophet, who is the Antichrist, kind of his wingman. He's kind of the the, the propaganda man for the Antichrist. And the Antichrist and the false prophet are sent to hell. In fact, if you look at the end of verse number 20, it says, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The first two people who will go to hell will be the Antichrist and the false prophet. As I've said many times, there's nobody in hell right now. If an unbeliever dies, somebody who is unsaved dies, they go to a place called Hades. And at the end of time, people will go to hell. First, the Antichrist and the false prophet, and as we'll see in just a moment, then Satan will go to hell, and then after that, everybody who has rejected Jesus Christ will end up in hell. It's interesting. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Why didn't he say the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? Because in the church age, which is the age that we're living in right now, hell is, is there's nobody in hell. Hades is the place where demonic activity is currently uh, headquartered. And so that's where unsaved people are who have died now. And that's even below Hades in a place called Tartarus is a place where many of the fallen angels have been chained in, with chains in an everlasting darkness. And so that is the place where spiritual opposition comes from now, from Hades. So Jesus said, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. But chapter 19, the marriage of the Lamb, the battle of Armageddon, and the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet go to hell. Now, when we come to chapter 20 we read about a period of time known as the millennium. You'd think that word millennium means million, but it doesn't. It's a Latin word that means thousand. And it's talking about a thousand-year period of time after the return of Christ. The return of Christ will take place at the Battle of Armageddon. The rapture is not the second coming. In the rapture, Jesus doesn't come to the earth. He comes to the air. We meet him in the air, then we go to heaven. At the Battle of Armageddon, Jesus comes back to the earth. It is his second coming to earth. 
And in Zechariah chapter 14, we read that his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and the Mount will split one way and the other way. And Jesus will go into the city of Jerusalem and he'll set up his kingdom. And in chapter 20, we read that for a thousand years in Jerusalem, Jesus will rule and Jesus will reign uh, on this earth. Somebody says, when will there be peace in the Middle East? When will there be peace in the world? I'll tell you when there'll be peace in the world, when Jesus comes. When the Prince of Peace is on his throne, ruling and reigning, there will be peace in the land. No president, no leader, no law, no treaty, no pact, no covenant, nothing will ever bring lasting peace until Jesus Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom. And in chapter 20, we read about this thousand years of peace. Now, interestingly enough, one of the reasons that these thousand years will be so wonderful, there will be in Jerusalem with Jesus in our new bodies, ruling and reigning with him, and during those thousand years, Satan will be in a bottomless pit. In fact, if you look in verse number 1, of chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And so during the thousand years, Satan is bound, bottomless pit. Jesus is crowned, King of kings, Lord of lords, ruling in Jerusalem. Peace in the land. It is the golden age. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released from the pit to go out to try to deceive those who were born during the tribulation, born to those who were living on the earth when the tribulation, or, or born during the millennium, people who had been saved during the tribulation, had entered into the millennial period, but they had entered into the millennial period in their physical bodies, Whereas those of us who are saved during the millennium will be in our resurrected bodies. We'll have already been to heaven and gotten our new bodies and come back to the earth. We'll get our new bodies at the rapture, and when we come back to the earth, we'll be in our resurrected bodies. So there'll be no procreation taking place on our part. But those who were saved during the tribulation and were still alive at the second coming, they will enter the millennium in their earthly bodies. Many of them will have kids and many of those kids won't be saved, and, so, and then they'll have kids, and they'll have kids. It's a thousand years' worth of generations here. And during the Satan's uh, release from the bottomless pit, he will deceive many of those who were born during the millennium. At the end of those thousand years, God will wipe Satan out and pronounce the final, um, sure enough, the final battle on him and defeat him. And then if you look in verse number 10 of chapter 20, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So in chapter 20, we read about three things. The millennium, and we read about when Satan goes to hell, and we read about the great white throne judgment. And one of the most blessed experiences we had during our study of Revelation was our study of the great white throne judgment. It is a judgment for unsaved people. And they will stand before God one day, and they will be judged based on how they have lived their lives. And the Bible says in this passage that books will be open, which talk about all the things they've done that have never been forgiven. You see, unsaved people and saved people, we've committed many of the same sins 
The difference is those of us who are saved, our sins have been forgiven. Our sins have been blotted out. Our sins are no longer in those books. But people who are unsaved, their sins are still on the record. Their sins have never been blotted out. And one day, since they refused Christ, they will stand before God, and God will open books, and God will say, you did this, and you did this, and you did this, and you did this, and it was all unforgiven because you rejected Christ. And so now you must pay the price that he actually paid, but you rejected his payment, and so now your sin is on you. And if you look in verse number 15, it says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Can you, the horror of that, the thought of that, the possibility that a person could and will, many will, but the possibility of even someone in a setting like this who's hearing this being taught and one day standing before God and their names are not in the Lamb's book of life because they have never been saved. And so we read about all that in chapter 20. Now, chapters 21 and 22, the best part of the book, tell us about heaven. And John has a tour of heaven, what one pastor called a guided tour of heaven. The angel is taking John around heaven and showing him the sights. And look in verse 1. John said, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so at the end of it all, after the millennium, Heaven is coming down to earth, and God will be with his people on the earth. Where was God when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden? Well, certainly God was in heaven, but God was also on earth. Because we read in Genesis that every day in the evening time, in the cool of the day, God came to that garden, and God would walk with Adam and Eve in the, in the Garden of Eden. God was, God was on the earth with Adam and Eve, and yet they sinned, and they broke fellowship with God, and We've all paid the price ever since that time, but there's coming a day when God will be back on the earth and he'll be with us. Look in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And so in chapters 21, what do we read about? We read about heaven. Now, if that overview of the book made sense to you, would you just say amen? You see, I think you can memorize that. Chapter 1, a vision of Jesus. Chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches. Chapter 4, verse 1, the rapture. Chapters 4 and 5, a worship scene in heaven. Chapters 6 through 18, the great tribulation. Chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the battle of Armageddon, the Antichrist and the false prophet go to hell. See, you can learn. Chapter 20, what did we see? The millennium. Satan goes to hell, the great white throne judgment. Chapters 21 and 22, heaven. And so that is an overview of the book of Revelation. You say, John, why did it take us two years? You just do that. I mean, why did you drag that out for two years? Well, I've got to work on that. Now, go back to chapter 1, and I want to show you in one verse the outline for the whole book. And if you can learn this verse, the book will even make more sense to you. Chapter 1 and verse 19, Jesus is speaking to John, and Jesus says, 119, write the things which you have seen. What had he seen? A vision of Jesus, all right? And the things which are, 
What is, what is now in the present tense? The church age, the seven churches, and the things which, which will take place after this. That is from the rapture on, all these future events. And so the book of Revelation has the past, the present, and the future. What had John seen? A vision of Jesus. What's happening now? The churches are in the world. The church of Jesus Christ is in the world. What will take place later? The rapture and all those events that we just talked about. And so in one verse, we have the rapture of the church. Now, as I have thought about the book of Revelation and all of its complexities and all of its symbolism and all of its meaning, and I've tried to simplify it down this morning in what we've done, But I thought it would be good if I could come up with a statement, maybe a couple of sentences, but a short summary of the entire book of Revelation. And so I'm not saying this is the best thing that anybody ever said. I'm sure it's not. But I want to give you what I consider to be Revelation in a very short paragraph. And you might want to write this down. Here it is. We're in a battle. Now, if you would agree with that part, say amen, that we're in a battle. We're in a battle. And the battle is going to get worse before it ends. But be assured of this. Jesus Christ is in total control. You believe that? Well, he is in control. And he will get the last word and have the final victory. Friend, we're in a battle. Now, if you go home today or tomorrow or this week and turn on cable news, they'll have you believing that our battle is a political battle. Friend, I'm telling you today, our battle is not a political battle primarily. Our battle is a spiritual battle. The Bible says we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but that's not what cable news would have you to believe. Cable news would have you to believe the other side is the enemy. Friend, I'm telling you the other side's not the enemy. The devil is the enemy, and he is at the root of our problems. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, the Bible says, but against principalities and against powers, and against the rulers of the darkness of this age. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that we cannot fight this battle with human methods. It is a spiritual battle. We are in a battle, and the battle is going to get worse before it ends. The great tribulation, you see, as I said at the beginning of the pandemic, and one of the reasons I'm glad this series got drug out, because it gave us time to deal with the pandemic. And one of the things we said during the pandemic is that we believe, and I still believe, that during what this world has been through and is still going through, God is giving us a glimpse of how messed up and horrible this world will one day be. But I'm afraid many of us have missed the message that God has been communicating to us because as this pandemic has drug on, the conversation has been much more political than it has spiritual. I believe God, in the, even in the pandemic, is giving us a glimpse, a minor glimpse, albeit, but a glimpse of what life will one day be like on the earth during the Great Tribulation. That's why I say here, the battle is going to get worse before it ends, but be assured of this, Jesus Christ in total control. He will have the final word, and he will get the ultimate victory. We look around. I had my news on yesterday. I was watching cable news and I had it turned on. The western part of our country is on fire. Germany is being flooded out. You've seen, you've been watching what's happening in the world in the last year. Riots, protests, crazy things are happening out there. Not, I'm not talking about peaceful protests. I'm talking about people trying to burn down cities and take things over, and, and it's just been a horrible thing, and we look at what's happening in the world, and the, the 
people who have died from this virus, and we, we say, what is this world coming to? Friend, I'll tell you what this world's coming to. This world is coming to the feet of Jesus. That's what this world is coming to. Revelation chapter 11 and verse number 15. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There's one thing that everybody in the world has, will ultimately have in common. No matter what our background is, no matter what faith we grew up under, whether it was Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, agnostic, or something else, there's coming a day when every one of us will bow our knees at the feet of Jesus and confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day's coming. That's what this world is coming to. This world is coming to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying everybody's going to be saved. Some people will make that confession in hell. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and through 11, that God also has highly exalted him, that highly exalted Jesus, and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and of things on earth and of things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. One of these days, that confession will go out from heaven, from earth, and from hell itself. Jesus is Lord. That's what the world is coming to. And so the question is, well, what are we supposed to do now? Well, that's why I said at the beginning, I wanted us to take a moment, look at the overview of the book, the outline of the book, a summary statement of the book. But now I have four statements that I want to make quickly, succinctly, that I think give us the steps that we need to take as we come to the end of our study in the book of Revelation. Number one step that we must all take is simply this, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Now, let's go back to the very end of the book, chapter 22, and in verse number 17, 22, 17, the end of the book now, and notice what it says, and the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, and the bride, that is the church, that's you, that's me, say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirst come, Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. How does this book end? It ends with the Holy Spirit, the church, saying, come to Jesus Christ. And I'm asking you today, are you absolutely sure that you have come to Jesus Christ? Now, when I say that, I love how Charles Spurgeon described coming to Jesus, the great English preacher back in the 1800s. He said, by coming to Jesus, we're not talking about mere physical locomotion where somebody has been through the motions of coming to Jesus. By coming to Jesus, it's talking about in repentance in our heart and with faith in our heart, confessing our sins, asking Christ to save us, and trusting Him to do it. And I'm asking you today, have you come to Jesus? That's step number one. Step number two, trust in Jesus. Perhaps my favorite verse in our study of Revelation has been in chapter 12 and in verse 11 where it says, talking about those who are living on the earth during the tribulation who got saved, and yet now they're in battle with the Antichrist, who's beheading many of them and torturing others, and it says this, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Talking about faith in Jesus. They overcame the enemy by trusting in Jesus and by confessing their faith in his blood. Here is salvation in a nutshell. R.T. Kendall says it the best that I think I've ever heard it said. He said, here's how you get saved. You transfer your faith 
from your good works and from anything and everything about you, you transfer that faith to the blood of Jesus Christ. That is so good and so clear. Let me ask you today, what are you trusting to get you to heaven? Yourself or the blood of Jesus? Well, if you're going to go to heaven, you have to trust the blood of Jesus. Greatest thing I ever did was transfer my faith from John to Jesus and to his blood. And so the second step is trust in Jesus. Step number three, look for Jesus. We should be looking for Jesus. Now, look back in chapter 22. I want to show you three verses. And verse number seven, Jesus said, behold, I'm coming quickly. Look in verse 12, and behold, I'm coming quickly. And look in verse 20, he says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. And then John says, amen, even so, come Lord Jesus. Now think about this. We woke up this morning in Pasadena or Deer Park or Clear Lake or LaPorte or Houston, wherever you woke up, and here we are in the middle of the morning, and we're at the First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. That's where we are. But did you know it is altogether possible that while we began this day in Texas, that we just might end this day in heaven? Jesus might come back for us today. Now, we believe that, but I don't know how much we really get that into our daily thinking but I encourage you every day, look for Jesus. This could be the day that he comes back. And then the final statement would be this. Extend to others the grace of Jesus. Look in verse number 21, the last verse in the study of Revelation. It says this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. After John tells us what he saw in Jesus, after John tells us about the churches, after he tells us about the rapture and the, the worship in heaven and, and all these future events, he ends the book by saying this, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What was he doing? He was extending to others the grace that he had received. As I thought about that and I thought about our 52 weeks in Revelation and, and our study, I thought, you know, I want to end this series the same way John ended this book, I want to extend to you the grace of Jesus Christ and say to you today that if you don't know for absolute certain that there has been a time in your life where you, in repentance of sin and confession of sin and faith in Jesus Christ, have come to Him, Jesus said in John chapter 6, all that the Father give me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. I will accept you. I will receive you. I will forgive you. And I will save you. And if you've never come to Jesus, and if you've never trusted in him, and if you've never transferred your faith from you to his blood, I'll give you a chance to do that today. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, only God knows in our study how many people have been saved. Some weeks we've seen 20 and 30 and more people stand up in these services saying, today, I have received Jesus. Today I've confessed my sins. Today I've opened my heart to him. Today I've been saved. And they've evidenced that by standing. But before you stand, you have to receive Christ. You have to, you have to pray this prayer or some prayer. You don't have to say these words, but you have to call on the Lord and ask him to save you. Would you say this right now? Say, Lord Jesus, I want to know for sure that I'm saved. God, when that rapture takes place, I don't want to be left behind. I want to be taken up into heaven. I want to be with you. I don't want to live through the tribulation. I want to live in heaven with you forever. But, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've messed up. I've made a mess of things. 
And God, I'm sorry. God, if I could go back and do it again, I would. If I could undo it, I would undo it. But I can't. And so I'm asking you today to forgive my sins and to wash them all away. Wash them all away, Jesus. Come into my heart. Make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. And I trust you to do it. Right now, I transfer my faith from me to you and to your blood shed on that cross for my sins. I trust you, Jesus, with all my heart.